builder in southern New Hampshire. With over 33 years' experience, Edgestone offers highly valued residential homes, including first-time buyer, luxury move-up, and senior community opportunities. Edgestone also offers well-located rental apartments, including active adult communities. Visit us at edgestoneproperties.com or call us at 603-889-5208 to learn more. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. That's 603-889-5208. Next up, you'll be listening to United Way Community Connections with Mike Affelberg. United Way Community Connections. United Way Community Connections broadcasts every Monday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. right here on WSMN. In United Way Community Connections, you will be introduced to leaders from all of the great nonprofits in Greater Nashua, from caring for our children to our seniors, from helping our homeless pets to our at-risk vets, from learning the skills to get your GED, to dealing with trauma and substance abuse. Community Connections is the place to learn with Mike Affelberg about what's going on. Learn how you can help and make a difference from the experts. So sit back, grab a cup of coffee, and enjoy the show, which is making a difference in Greater Nashua. Here's your host, Mike Affelberg. Well, good Monday morning, and welcome to the United Way Community Connections show on WSMN 1590 AM. It is Monday, June 29th. 2020. And uh, I'm your host, Mike Affelberg. We are here each and every Monday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. talking with you about the nonprofits in our community. Nonprofits are an essential part of any community, and in Greater Nashua, I consider them to be the heart and soul of what goes on and making this a better place for us to all live, work, and uh, just uh, exist here. Um, and uh, and just thrive. So a little bit about our show. Each and every Monday morning, we interview two different nonprofit organizations, and this is their opportunity really to talk about what they do. What does it mean to say what you do? In the world of nonprofits, that's called your mission. Your mission is how you're making the world a better place. Um, when a nonprofit talks about their mission, they do so with a le- through the lens of trying to engage people in the community so that they know how what they are as a resource to folks. Uh, for example, let's say you are sitting around the table, or you're sitting around a picnic table this summer, uh, uh, socially distanced, of course, um, and somebody says, you know, my uncle Fred... He is struggling with substance use disorder. He is, you know, having, he has a problem with, um, say, heroin. And, uh, gosh, I'd, I'd, I, I, he, I know he wants to, um, you know, get help. I know he'd like to, um, you know, sort of get into recovery and uh, get back, get his life back together. Uh, but I have no idea even how to suggest where he might go or what he might do to do that. Well, you know, by listening to the United Way Community Connection Show each and every Monday morning, you will learn about the nonprofits that address these types of needs. For example, you might learn about how Southern New Hampshire Health is the uh, doorway in our community to seek recovery, uh, seek treatment. Or you might learn about how the um, uh, Revive Recovery is a resource that people might tap into to, um, you know, find sources find resources like um you know a recovery support group or you know any other number of resources so this is one way in which um, you might be able to be helpful is because you can tell people you know hey i heard about this thing you want you want to maybe check it out they might be able to help you to uh to to get to where you need to be 
that's one reason to listen to the show, just to be a resource. Of course, I always do tell people, you know, there are other resources. There's always way more resources in our community than you might be aware of. Um, and the easiest way to find out what they all are is by just dialing the statewide um, number 211. And that's a program of United Way that uh, is a database with operators that can connect you to all of the different types of organizations that exist in our community for really any kind of nonprofit work. Um, nobody knows everything, and, and uh, they might be able to connect you pretty well. That's one reason to listen to our show, um, to help people. The other reason is because we have a very giving community. I have can tell you over the last couple of months with the COVID response, I have um, uh, discovered a newfound um, respect for all of the very generous people in our community with both their time and also with their treasure. Um, and what I mean by that is we have a lot of people who give their time through volunteering to nonprofits in our community. I know that at United Way over the past couple of months, we've logged well over 6,000 volunteer hours with COVID response. And, and uh, other people have volunteered with many other organizations. Um, when you give your time, that is really a way of donating. And uh, in the nonprofit world, we're able to accept that free labor as, as a donation. So that's an awesome thing. Um, if you know, in the for-profit world, you can't really ha use free labor, but in the nonprofit world, you certainly can. And, uh, but where are you going to volunteer? Well, you're going to volunteer in a place that uh, speaks to your heart, that pulls at your heartstrings, that is changing the world in a way in which uh, makes sense to you. And uh, volunteering with a nonprofit is, is a great thing to do for that. Uh, the other thing is that a lot of times people, maybe they don't have the time or the ability to volunteer, but, but uh, for whatever reason, um, but they might have some financial means to donate some money. Of course, nonprofits all need money to operate as well. As much as we'd like to think that uh, nonprofits do their work for free, they don't. They can't. They also have staff and salaries, and they operate in buildings that have rent and utilities, and, and uh, you know, they need to do their work. So um, donating um, a, little, a couple dollars here and there is also a really great thing, and all of our nonprofits, I know, can use that to, to sustain their operations. Um, listening to our show can help you to, to know which organizations might be doing things that make sense to you. So today we've got a pretty great show lined up. We're going to have, um, uh, as I said, two different nonprofits as we usually do. Um, although I will say over the past couple of months, we've also had a couple of shows where we didn't have nonprofits. We had, um, you know, business partners of ours just talking about what they're doing in our community. But today we're going to have two nonprofits, one of, is, one of which, which will be on about 20 after the hour, is CASA, Court Appointed Special Advocates. And that's an organization which is fa just fantastic. They, they um, um, work on behalf of young people who are uh, oftentimes um, involved with DCYF. Maybe they are... Um, They've been taken out of the home. They're looking, they need an advocate to um, speak for them in the system and make sure that they uh, don't fall through the cracks. I, I love CASA, and I know that you're going to love them too as soon as you hear their story. So they're going to be on about 20 after the hour. The other, um, the, the other nonprofits can be on about 20 of the hour is Dartmouth-Hitchcock Hospital. Now, you might not think of hospitals as nonprofits, but believe it or not, most of them actually are. And in our community, we have St. Joseph's, Southern New Hampshire Health. Uh, we also have Dartmouth-Hitchcock and their presence. They're up on exit 8, and, um, of course, they're statewide as well. Um, Dartmouth-Hitchcock is going to talk a little bit about 
what for them care look care looks like healthcare has has looked like in the age of coronavirus some things have stayed the same some things have changed radically i don't know about you but i just had a um, recent in- instance of an in in office visit which was totally different than anything i'd ever experienced before and um, that's because of social distancing and masks and face mask requirements and sanitizing and like that but there's also telehealth which has really taken a huge leap forward and uh, so we're going to talk about that and how um, you know patient care has evolved rapidly in these past couple of months and in many ways for the better so and that's really a good thing i will say our show besides being live on the radio right here on wsmn 1590 am is of course live also on facebook and i want to say good morning to a couple folks who are listening i saw i saw my friend doreen Manetta from enterprise bank was listening good morning to you doreen i see my friend roland peterson roland or as he likes to go pete by his name pete pete's a friend of mine from nashua rotary club west pete is also um, going over the edge in a couple of weeks meaning he's going to be repelling from the top of the brady sullivan tower on behalf of his favorite nonprofit, which is the children's dyslexia center um, so good morning to you, Roland. I see Justin Kenyon. Hi, Justin. It's been a long time since we talked, so I hope you're doing really, really great this morning. I'm not sure where you are. Are you in California? Are you in Maine? Are you right here in Nashua? But Justin, it's always good to see you. And then I see my friend Ian Bowker just logged in. Ian is a member of Nashua Rotary Club right here in Nashua. Um, uh, that's the Rotary Club, Rotary Club that I belong to as well. Ian, good morning to you. And uh, great to see you on the show. Ian's actually been on the show before with his um, wife as well, who has an interesting nonprofit that uh, she participates in. So good morning to everybody. You can catch us on catch you on, catch me on my Facebook feed, which is just um, if you look for Michael Affelberg on Facebook, you'll find me. There's one Mike, only one Michael Affelberg in the entire known universe. So um, on Facebook, which makes me feel pretty special, but it also <laughs> makes it pretty hard to hide, if you know what I mean. So it's 9.15, and uh, I want to tell you just uh, one or two things about this week at United Way. So first of all, it is uh, 4th of July week. 4th of July this year falls on Saturday, and um, what that means is that Friday is an official federal holiday, which for us means that we're going to have to curtail our food operations in the schools on Friday. We're going to be doubling up on Wednesdays, so our bus routes and our school fixed locations are going to have more food than usual to get kids through the weekend. We will also, as always, have um, uh, N68 hours of hunger food bags available on our bus routes and our fixed locations, as well as um, fresh produce and frozen meals courtesy of the Nashua Soup Kitchen and Shelter and brought to us at our locations through our great partners at the Boys and Girls Club. So it's going to be a really great week for food, but it's going to be slightly curtailed if you do know somebody or yourself has taken advantage of this program, which which is really for all of the children in Nashua, regardless of need, regardless of financial status. Um, it's, uh, it's just been a great program and a partnership with the school district and the transit system. But it's going to be nothing on Friday. Everything that would normally be on Friday is going to go out on Wednesday. So make sure people know about that. Wednesday should be a pretty big day. But I don't want people to show up at their normal bus stop on Friday and say, oh, I want, where's my sandwich? Because there won't be anything on Friday. And uh, we don't want people to you know, be, left, be left, left without. So please make sure people know about that. Uh, that's, uh, you know, that's pretty much it for um, you know, special announcements relative to United Way this week. What I will tell you is that it was a great weekend personally for me. So I'm a new dad. I haven't been able to say that in 26 years, but I am a new dad. Um, This time, instead of having to give birth 
to a to a child. I actually got to give birth to a son-in-law. Uh, my daughter Casey and and her fiance John wed on Saturday. It was just fantastic. Um, it was a sort of wedding in the age of coronavirus, and basically what that means is. Um, Instead of a big wedding, we had a small wedding. Instead of a uh, you know super professional officiant, they decided to to go with me, and so I got to officiate my my daughter's wedding, which was pretty cool. I got to say, it was a lot of fun. Um, everybody was very forgiving of the fact that both um, I'm I'm new to this gig, but also um, uh, that uh, it was uh, you know sort of I'm a crier. What can I say? So. When you officiate your daughter's wedding, it's uh, that that uh, double sense of stressed out, wanting to be perfect, and also you know a lot of um, crying and weeping, which is what I do anyway. But it was really pretty great, and congratulations to the two of them. John, welcome to our family. We are glad to have you. We love you, son. So it's going to be a going to be a good thing, and uh, it's pretty pretty great. Uh, so that was this weekend. I have to say a big shout out to my wife, Kirsten, who put together the party aspect and uh, the food was great. The drinks were great. Everything worked out great with tables and tents and all of that stuff and uh, that, that takes place behind the scenes and putting a wedding together. I can't imagine that a quote unquote professional wedding planner would have done anything better. Um, frankly, I think you did an amazing job too, Kirsten. So good job to you and um, congratulations to the new couple. So we're going to take our first break here. Our show is brought to you by Edgestone Properties. Edgestone Properties is one of our community's premier builders. They've been building quality homes in our community for many, many decades now. Um, and we're so proud of their sponsorship of this program. Um, we will be back in just a couple minutes with our first guests. Um, as I said, that's going to be Casa, New Hampshire. And we have two guests on, one of which is the director of uh, recruitment, which is volunteer engagement, and another who's a volunteer. And I love it when volunteers come on our show because they can tell their story. And uh, maybe you'll uh, enjoy it so much that you'll want to volunteer with CASA as well. You are listening to the United Way Community Connection Show, and I'm your host, Mike Affelberg. We'll be back in just a short moment after our break. And uh, our show is brought to you by Edstone Properties. Thank you so much for listening in this morning. is a leading home builder in southern New Hampshire. With over 33 years experience, Edgestone offers highly valued residential homes including first-time buyer, luxury move-up, and senior community opportunities. Edgestone also offers well-located rental apartments including active adult communities. Visit us at edgestoneproperties.com or call us at 603-889-5208 to learn more. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. That's 603-889-5208. Since 1930, United Way of Greater Nashua has been your trusted partner to fight for the health, education, and financial stability of every person in every community. When a low-income child needs access to dental care, or parents need quality after-school programs where their kids can learn and be safe, United Way is there. When a person with disabilities needs a supportive day program where they can thrive, or a family loses its home and needs a place to regain financial stability, United Way is there. When a homebound senior needs food and supportive social connections, or when it comes time to die with dignity, United Way is there. The programs supported by your United Way are the heart and soul of Greater Nashua. When you volunteer or donate to United Way, you lift up the community where you live and you work. As a highly regarded nonprofit with Charity Navigator and GuideStar, you can be sure that your donations will be used for the work of making Greater Nashua stronger, smarter, and safer. Learn more and connect with us at unitedwaynashua.org. Why pay more for the new technology? If you're 
Well, good Monday morning and welcome to the United Way Community Connection Show. I am your host, Mike Affelberg. We are here each and every Monday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. talking with you about the nonprofits in our community, organizations that are the heart and soul of Greater Nashua, making this a place which is better, stronger, smarter, safer, healthier, and happier for all of us who live and work here. Today we're going to be talking um, for a few minutes with an organization which is near and dear to my heart and also many of you who are listening, but some of you might not have even heard of CASA. CASA stands for Court Appointed Special Advocates. Um, it's a national organization with a local footprint here and a local affiliate here in, in New Hampshire, CASA NH. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what they do, how they're changing lives, who their clients are, what their needs are for volunteers, and how you can get involved in their very important work. Our guests to talk about CASA today are going to be Diane Valderas. Diane is the Director of Recruitment, which is Volunteer Recruitment. Um, so we're going to talk a lot about volunteering this morning. And then we also have Brendan Jalbert. Brendan is a what we call an advocate at CASA, which makes him like one of their primary volunteers. So big brothers and big sisters, they call their volunteers bigs. Um, at CASA, they call them advocates. Um, at United Way, we call them uh, just volunteers. So we all have our own language, and uh, Brendan's going to talk a little bit about what it means to be a volunteer at CASA of New Hampshire. So with no further ado, I'm going to introduce the two of them, and I'm going to start out with Diane. Diane, welcome to our show, and thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having us, Mike. It is my pleasure and, uh, and my honor as well. So Diane, let's talk about, for starters, a little bit about what is CASA, what is your mission, and how are you, how are you changing lives in our community? So our mission is to help children that are in uh, situations of abuse and neglect uh, find their way into a permanent home. And whether that home is back with the parents that they were removed from, or um, if they've been freed for adoption and they're in a new permanent home, that's our goal, to keep kids safe and to give them the opportunity to grow up knowing permanency. And when you say, um, you know, you're the kids, primarily these are children who are in what, what we would call the system. I'm using air quotes. Yes. I can use air quotes because we're on Facebook. I'm going to do it behind <laughs> me. So our, our, our camera, you guys can't see this, but our camera's pointing in this direction, which is great. I need to draw like a smiley face on my bald spot or something. <laughs> but hello, peace, behind me. But So air quotes, we're talking about children who are in the system. Yes. So that would mean they're in perhaps foster care or mm -hmm. they're pl placed with a home like the Nashua Children's Home. Yep, they could be with a relative. They could even still be with their parents. But they're, they've are they been officially identified by yep. the Department of Children and Youth Services, the Yeah, DCYF. they're working with social workers and okay. therapists and stuff like that, yeah. Okay, very good. And then so at that, so at what point do you get involved with these children? How do you know who they are? And then what, what becomes, how do they become a case for you to, to work with? Sure, so... DCYF is constantly working with families that um, 
are, are having difficulties in, in helping to shore these families up. When it gets to the point where they feel the children are unsafe, they bring the case to court. And once the court is involved, the court reaches out to CASA for an advocate, and that's how we get involved. So um, sometimes it's an infant that's, you know, three days old, or it might be um, children who are in school and their teacher called up multiple times because she was noticing bruises or behaviors. So that's when we get involved in the case, and we stay with it until it closes, and that means um, typically two years, sometimes much more than that, sometimes less than that, but um, we are with that child until they are in a safe, permanent home, whether that's back with the parents or in an adoptive placement, or they age out of the system at 18. So we get children between the ages of zero to 18. That's pretty, and I'd imagine that your volunteers uh, perhaps differ a little bit. Like who 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 becomes a volunteer is probably a little bit like like with big brothers and big sisters, going to depend on you know what sort of age they level um, they they want to work with. Is that right? Mm, yeah, we do give them that choice. Yeah. Um, although sometimes we're begging people to take cases, you know, just because we've got one and we've got to get. A volunteer on it but we do try to match people up as best we can with the demographic they prefer to work with sure and a court in their local area so that they're not traveling all over the place that's that's I'm sure very important yeah so then so then we so we have a somebody who comes um, in is needed needs an advocate and that's when Brendan comes to comes into the play yep. so Brendan let's uh, bring you into the conversation you Thanks, are an Mike. advocate and what does that mean to you? How long have you been doing what you're doing? And, what, and sort of generally, what is it that you actually do? Sure, sure. So I've been an advocate now for about two years, but my process and my journey with CASA started about three years ago. Um, and there was about a year where I, I went through the process to be uh, interviewed and go through the application process. And then after training, which was an entire week of training, uh, I got a call from my program manager, who's an employee of CASA, and said, hey, I have a case that I think um, would be a great fit for you. And as Diane mentioned, in my particular situation, it was a three-day-old little boy, and um, and I've been with him now for the last two years as we still work towards finding him a permanent home. And what that looks like for me is um, doing visits with him, um, seeing how he's doing, being able to observe him and play with him and talk to him and um, and just see how he's doing against his you know his his health requirements, talking to his foster parents, um, uh, talking to his biological parents, and just trying to make sure that we. We are, um, we're always mindful that uh, the child's interests are first and foremost, but also really helping the families because it's our goal. We start from a place where reunification with mom and dad is the goal. That's our hopeful outcome. Um, and then we always have kind of a backup plan of, of, uh, of adoption or something else if that shouldn't work out. And that's pretty much also the state's goal, I would have to say as well. In, in New Hampshire, the objective is... I think I think the belief is that generally speaking, re, reunification with uh, the parent, parents, the biological parents, is the goal. But that might not always be the, the the best thing. And I suspect part of what your role is to is to sort of feel out that landscape and Absolutely. identify whether you think or believe that this is really what's the right avenue to advocate for for the child. Right. That's mm -hmm. right. Yeah. So we I work very closely with the caseworkers at DCYF on the case. And uh, as we're moving through the case, we're always giving recommendations to the judge as to what we believe is in the best interest of the child. And so the judge will make that decision based uh, in part on my recommendation as well as the recommendation of DCYF. And that judge is, that's a special court that's hearing these cases, It's right? a family court, yeah, family court judge. Okay. 
Okay. And um, I, before I forget, I have to say, you have the best face mask so far. You, you win because you actually have the Casa face mask, which I love. Diane's, yours is great, too, because it's very you. flowery and floral and spring-ish. And I've got the sort of the government-issued FEMA white face mask. So, so, but I don't have to face the cameras, so you, you guys have the decorative um, uh, adornments. Um, so you said you've been doing this for about three years now? That's is that right, right Brendan? Yep. Yep. So what got you intrigued and interest in the first place? Yeah, so um, you know, I've shared a little bit of my story with a number of people. I grew up in a home um, where I was neglected and abused, and as I became an adult and I started to raise a family of my own and I got involved with my church, um, I, I felt like there was a huge need to do more to protect children. Um, I wasn't in a place where we could foster or adopt a child, but I knew that on the spectrum of doing something, there was something I could do that wasn't nothing and, it was, and was not fostering. Um, I happened to run into a friend of mine who was involved with CASA. She spent some time talking to me about it, and uh, that day I went home and I started doing more research, and I figured out that this was um, this was probably what I was supposed to do. So you kind of felt like you were called to this particular absolutely. line yep. of volunteering. Yep, absolutely. Felt called to it, felt drawn to it, and um, from the very, very beginning and meeting folks like Diane and other advocates and uh, and people on staff at CASA, I've, I've always been reassured that this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. That's amazing. So what sort of volunteer commitment is it for you to be a uh, to be an advocate? Yeah, so after going through the 40 hours of training, um, there, are, there are limits, there are minimums that are expected of CASA volunteers. So sure. I'm required to do, you know, one visit a month with each of the kids that I have. Um, oftentimes I try to do more than that. Um, I try to check in with the parents, the foster parents, the kids as, as regularly as I can. Um, that's been a little more challenging with uh, with the current environment we're in and not being able to do as many physical visits and having to do some creative things. Um, but then there's also kind of the report writing for court and the court appearances, yep. which generally are about every few months. There's a court appearance where we'll have to attend and speak on behalf of the child um, because we are we are part of the case and we are an, uh, as an advocate as a guardian ad litem for that child the judge is always interested in what we have to say. So you have a special legal status. You're not just some guy showing up randomly in court saying, you know, I think such and such should be done with this child. You've actually had training and have a special status within the court on behalf of that that, that young person. That's right. In fact, in the judges that have, uh, I've, I've heard from judges through the family court system that um, in cases where there is a volunteer guardian ad litem through CASA, they're much more excited and much more hopeful of the outcome of that case for the child as opposed to, say, um, a non-volunteer guardian ad litem. That's, that's, really, that's really great. Now, I just got a breakaway for one second to say hi to all of the people who are watching us on Facebook because they always join in and they always, you know, I think people watch this on Facebook just to hear their names. I don't know about it. Maybe it's, uh, that's not true. But Margie, it's good seeing you. I, I hope everything's going well. We used to work together many, many years ago. So Margie Althouse, good seeing you. Matt Plant. Good seeing you as well. And Debbie McBride, good seeing you too. And I think your daughter was joining us earlier. I think I saw her. She's over in Colorado. I suspect you're down in Chelmsford. But good seeing all of you this morning as well as I already mentioned, Ian and Pete. So uh, we have a little bit of a little bit of a crowd today. Nice. I did see Doreen. Now, do you know Doreen Mineta? Sure do. Yeah, she's okay. on one of our committees. I was going to say, Doreen's a great volunteer, and I know she's a great advocate for CASA as an organization. I'm always, uh, she's, she's a great uh, partner of ours at United Way, but uh, I know that her heart is really drawing, drawn to, to CASA. Yeah. 
Um, and she likes to fundraise for you guys, mm-hmm. too, which is great. <laughs> Yay. Yay. I know you need that, right? We do. So, Diane, you are the director of recruitment. What do you look for in your volunteers? How do you, where do you get your volunteers, and what to you is sort of the, uh, the ideal candidate? Uh, well, we get our volunteers from all walks of life. I yeah. mean, people who do this range from 21 is the minimum age because you are technically an officer of the court. So 21 is the minimum, and we have volunteers that are in their 80s. And they come to us from all walks of life. Usually they've heard about CASA through another volunteer, or they've seen it on MUR or heard us on the radio um, or seen us in print ads. Um, we've been doing a lot of Facebook advertising as well and, and getting a lot of people yep. involved that way. So it's been great. Um, we look for people who primarily can commit to the life of a case. So it's it's a big commitment that you're taking on. CASA is kind of a heavy lift. Um, there's 40 hours of training that people have to get through. And that has always been challenging for people. A lot of our training is done during daytime hours or there's a mix of days and nights, but it's usually during the week. And um, I think it's made it hard for people, but we've gone virtual with everything. We're doing our recruitment um, events live online, and we've been doing our training virtually mm-hmm. as well. And but you know, I ha- I'm going to say here, so my gut tells me, part of me says, the harder you make the training to participate in, the better it is that you're going to be able, the more likely it is you're going to get a volunteer who's going to stick with it. Because yes. You know, you've already got sort of, what do they call it, a little bit of uh, skin in the game. Yeah, they've climbed that mountain, and right. now they're going to, yeah. Right, because the last thing I think you want is for somebody to become a volunteer and take on a case and then say, oh, you know, it's more than I thought I could do, or, you know, and then you have a child who's really, right. you know, been put in limbo and who's really relying on you. And we talk to people about that. Um, you don't really know what is all about until you go through the training. It's so hard to, to describe it. People ask, what's a day in the life? There is no day in the life. Every day is different. You know, you could be doing a court report one day or visiting a kid the next or doing nothing for a week that had anything to do with CASA. So it really varies. Um, but having virtual training has made it easier for people to do it because they're doing it for the, for the comfort of their home for four hours sure. a day. Um, we just graduated 25 people. We have another class starting July 1st. Um, we're very excited. And... We need more volunteers mainly because cases are down by 50%. Um, kids aren't in front of their teachers, their community when members. When you say down by over 50%, you're talking not about since reported. March 1st. Yes. Yep. So we're afraid that when the fall comes, if kids are back in school and they're in front of their teachers and guidance counselors again, there's going to be an onslaught of cases. And I think we need to be ready. I think you're absolutely right about that. My daughter, and I've, I've mentioned this before on the show, my daughter is a, guidance count, is a guidance counselor here in one of the middle schools in Nashua. And she is um, you know, really quite concerned mm-hmm. about the number of um, uh, instances of reporting that she's seen. A lot of times it's the, the, you know, the teacher who sees the, the child day in and day out and can, can kind, of, kind of sense, is, there, is, every, is yeah. everything okay? Is something going on? Um, and nobody, nobody's around to see that anymore. No, no. So we're afraid the fall is going to be catastrophic, and we yeah. need the volunteers there to take the cases. So we're hoping to recruit as many people as we can during the summer months to be ready for that in October, November. That's um, good thinking and thinking ahead. Yeah. Absol- absolutely. 
And I'd imagine some part of your volunteering has gone virtual as well. I mean, I know that the courts, mm -hmm. probably some part of that is, is sort of a Hugely. Zoom online kind of thing. They do something called WebEx. It's more secure. And yep. where they don't have WebEx, they're doing telephonic hearings. Yep. But volunteers have been doing virtual visits with children via Zoom, via FaceTime. They've been driving by houses and waving. Um, one of our volunteers did um, cooking with her kids. They set up a Zoom and they got the ingredients together and she taught, she gave them a cooking lesson online. So they're finding very creative ways to, to unite with the kids. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really smart and because, uh, you know, as long as you can keep them engaged, you can, mm -hmm. you can also, but you can also then observe. Yes. And, and, and sort of, you know, you might be cooking, but what you're really doing is watching. Mm -hmm. That's good thinking. How many volunteers do you have statewide typically? Um, we've got somewhere between five and six hundred. It fluctuates. Um, we could probably use between six and seven hundred, maybe even between seven and eight hundred. I don't know. So many cases coming in. Um, they're far more complicated than when I began with CASA 18 years ago. I knew volunteers that were on five, six, seven cases. Nowadays, most people take one because they're complicated right. and time consuming. So, in order to manage it, one is, or two is like the limit. That so you need more volunteers. So we need more volunteers to take And the caseload is probably also increasing over time too. Yes, greatly increasing. Are there specific parts of the state where you have um, higher needs currently for yes. finding volunteers? Um, the Laconia area is always a hotbed. The North Country, we don't have enough volunteers up okay. there. Keene, Cheshire County, Sullivan County. Um, Dover is typically a place that we need more volunteers, although we're pretty good out in the seacoast mm -hmm. right now. We graduated a class right before this happened, and they're just getting assigned their cases. So Keene, Newport, Claremont, the North Country, Laconia, those are really hot cases. So you mentioned pretty there much everywhere right except for Manchester and Nashua. Well, they're the busiest courts. <laughs> of course. And Concord, so we always need people here as well. Yeah. Yeah, but so your but your de deficit is not really necessarily here in the same way. We can usually find somebody to cover a case down here. That's fine. Now, did you recruit Brandon? We did. You did. She you, did. You yourself. Well, <laughs> I didn't personally did you, go out there and reel him in. Find, no, find he Brandon came in a bar to us and through. Say, hey, you look like no. <laughs> <laughs> he came to us through another volunteer who has spread the word among so many people, um, and, and that's how the word gets out. That's and we're finding a lot of people like Brendan who would have liked to have been a foster parent but couldn't. They find CASA is a great alternative to that. It lets them help these children in a meaningful way without having to bring them into their homes. And maybe in a, in a way which is per, in some ways perhaps even more meaningful because um, you know we all have heard stories about how some of those foster families aren't really ideal situations mm -hmm. necessarily sometimes either. That's true, yeah. So Brendan, we have like... 20 more seconds left in our interview, so I'm going to let you have the closing words. I sure. wanted to close, if you don't mind, um, if you could reflect on what for you is perhaps one of your more meaningful experiences. What, you know, Where have you really derived uh, sort of what's called job satisfaction from being a CASA advocate? Yeah, I think probably the most uh, meaningful, uh, meaningful experience I've had is as I've worked with biological parents and foster families um, that are all uh, working towards the interests of this child. Um, it's given me a pre an appreciation of this uh, 
this uh, this gap that we have in relationships with people. We need good relationships with one another. We need positive relationships in our lives. And I think we're all just kind of one bad relationship or one bad choice mm-hmm. from being exactly where some of these parents are. And so if we have strong relationships, um, maybe we can avoid some of those um, some of those pitfalls. And as an advocate with my focus on the child, but I've also been able to be um, that strong relationship for the parents um, to help see them through and help them see the light at the end of the tunnel for possible reunification. And that's been um, that's been my goal from the beginning. And um, that's what, excuse me, that's what kind of gets me up in the morning to do this is the, the hope of keeping families together. That's wonderful, Brendan. Thank you for sharing that. And Diane, thank you for coming on and bringing thank Brendan you for with having you today. Us. So we're about ready to wrap things up. I did want to point out for everybody who's listening that if you want to learn more about CASA New Hampshire, that's Court Appointed Special Advocates of New Hampshire, you can find them online at www.casanh.org casanh.org if you're driving down the road and didn't get a chance to write that down and i really don't want you to get into an accident while you're listening to the community connection show then just give mike a call at united way and i'll connect you to diane um ask for mike ask for the guy it's all the same thing because i'm only i'm the only guy and i'm the only mike at, at united way of greater nashua and uh, we'll be sure to have you guys back on at some point in the Thank near you. future. Thank you. Especially before we get to the winter time, when you have your famous, amazing golf tournament up there in the up there in the snow. They're not golfing anymore. They're not going to do it this year. Well, they they do it, but they stopped the golfing last year. Oh, okay. Yeah. I always thought that was such a great idea, and I yep. I, I told Doreen I want to steal so that much idea. Fun. I know absolutely. Yeah. I'm always looking for a great, unique fundraiser, but. Uh, <laughs> Great organization, CASA of New Hampshire, uh, casanh.org, has all the information you might find about who they are, how you can volunteer, and how you can support them in upcoming news, upcoming events. Um, you're listening to the United Way Community Connections show. I am your host, Mike Affelberg. We'll be back in about, oh, I would say another two minutes or so with our next guest, which is Jonathan Ting from the uh, hospital here in New Hampshire, Dartmouth-Hitchcock, talking about what they're doing and uh, what patient care looks like in the age of coronavirus. Hi, I'm Tony Joyce from Joyce Cooling and Heating. The sun is getting higher and the days are getting longer, which means it's time to start thinking about central air conditioning for your home. While the heat may be great when lounging poolside, the last thing you want is sweltering temperatures inside your home. Whether you have air conditioning now that needs service or would like to add it, Joyce Cooling and Heating can help with a new ducted, ductless, or microduct system. And remember, that's Joyce Cooling and Heating, 882-4244, or on the web at JoyceCool.com. Join me, Bob Bartis, every Thursday from 5 to 6 p.m. for Books and Crooks, where I bring together local law enforcement and local librarians for a community information hour. We educate the public with one book and one cop at a time. We talk about what's trending and what's happening in Hollis, Hudson, Merrimack, and Nashua. Join me, Bob Bartis, every Thursday from 5 to 6 p.m. for Books and Crooks here on WSMN 1590. Edgestone Properties is a leading home builder in southern New Hampshire. With over 33 years' experience, Edgestone offers highly valued residential homes, including first-time buyer, luxury move-up, and senior community opportunities. Edgestone also offers well-located rental apartments, including active adult communities. Visit us at edgestoneproperties.com or call us at 603-889-5208 to learn more. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. That's 603-889-5208. Since 1930, United Way of Greater Nashua has been your trusted partner to fight for the health, education, and financial stability of every person in every community. When a low-income child needs access to dental care, 
or parents need quality after-school programs where their kids can learn and be safe, United Way is there. When a person with disabilities needs a supportive day program where they can thrive or a family loses its home and needs a place to regain financial stability, United Way is there. When a homebound senior needs food and supportive social connections, or when it comes time to die with dignity, United Way is there. The programs supported by your United Way are the heart and soul of Greater Nashua. When you volunteer or donate to United Way, you lift up the community where you live and you work. As a highly regarded nonprofit with Charity Navigator and GuideStar, you can be sure that your donations will be used for the work of making Greater Nashua stronger, smarter, and safer. Learn more and connect with us at unitedwaynashua.org. The Village Network was created for only one reason, to keep those 62 and older. Well, good Monday morning. You're listening to the United Way Community Connection Show. I'm your host, Mike Affelberg. We are here each and every Monday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. talking with you about the nonprofits in our community, organizations that are working to make our place where we live and work stronger, smarter, safer, healthier, and happier. Um, we're talking this morning with Dr. Jonathan Thing from the uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. He's located up here on Exit 8 in Nashua. Of course, Dartmouth-Hitchcock is the largest medical um, provider in the state. I think they might actually be the largest employer in the state as well, um, if not the largest, one of the largest. And, uh, you know, sometimes we forget that, that uh, many of our hospitals are, in fact, nonprofits. So you might have been wondering, like, why are we talking here with Dartmouth-Hitchcock when we should be talking with, I don't know, the Humane Society? Well, the fact is, hospitals, in many cases, have a mission as well. Their mission is health care, um, and they are also nonprofits. Um, so we want to make sure that they have a voice here at the table, especially in the times in which we live where coronavirus has had such an impact on healthcare. The delivery of healthcare has changed. Some things we've strived to keep the same as much as possible. Some things have changed radically, like telemedicine has taken a huge leap forward. Um, but uh, if you go into visit with your primary care physician, you're going to find that things have changed there as well. Um, and, uh, you know, frankly, some of that for the better. So we, we don't always want to dwell on, you know, how bad things have been because some things have actually been great improvements that we want to sort of hold on to. So with no further ado, John, I wanted to welcome you to our show. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. And it's been a while since we actually saw each other in person. I think we've been on Zoom calls a couple times. <laughs> a lot of those lately. <laughs> it, is, it is. You know, and the nice thing about Zoom calls is you can always see each other's face because the mask is not there present typically. But the bad thing is, like, you know, it's just not the same as in person. Right, right. So tell us a little bit about what are some of the big changes, things that you've seen over the past couple of months. You are in family medicine, so obviously family medicine has been greatly impacted. It's um, probably one of those areas in which you saw um, an immediate dramatic drop off in the number of patients you were seeing. Um, just like elective surgeries and stuff like that that weren't COVID-related, I suspect your practice also you know, saw a big drop-off in activity. Right, and elective visits in general as well. So, you know, we had to learn to adapt uh, pretty quickly because we still needed to see people who had, you know, acute uh, things going on, you know, more urgent uh, issues, and we had to devise ways to make sure that we were seeing them safely. So from the very beginning, we... Uh, started a, a screening process to try to, you know, make sure that 
anybody, whether they were calling in for an appointment or whether they were showing up at one of our facilities, that we could quickly uh, sort out whether they might have some uh, coronavirus-type symptoms. Uh, if so, you know, treat them in a special area of the clinic, but, you know, allow those who did not have those symptoms to proceed to their regular appointments. But everybody, of course, wears a mask. Checking, right. checking temperatures, and uh, so that's that's a huge change. From it really is. Previously. I, I went to my primary a couple of weeks ago, and um, first time I had been, and you know, checked my temperature, um, asked me a series of screening questions. Uh, you know, have I been diagnosed with COVID nineteen? Have I been around people who are known to have COVID nineteen? And also symptomatic changes, things right. like have you recently lost your sense of smell or taste? Some of those things, which are obvious symptoms. Right, cough and shortness of breath, and and the the problem with with a lot of that is that you know many of those symptoms you know we see from other illnesses as right. well, and we try right. to keep in the back of our head that uh, common things occur commonly, and a lot of those patients coming in with uh, congestion and the cough, I mean they may just have seasonal allergies, but so part of what we had to do too was impose a, a, another level of screening so that when somebody came to one of our facilities and they did have those symptoms. We would connect them with a triage, you know, nurse who would help to sort out, tease out whether those symptoms were, you know, more likely to be due to, you know, seasonal allergies for say than, you know, something that would be more suspicious for suspicious for COVID nineteen. Yeah, absolutely true, and I can tell you that I relate to that because I have seasonal allergies, and I found my seasonal allergies kicked in in April, which was. Of course, <laughs> like great timing. The, the, yeah, it was like you know that was the time in our lives where if you had any symptom at all, people were like they were looking like oh boy, right, right, he, he's got it. Yeah, and I was like no, no, this is my allergies. But I also tried really hard not to take any medications because I wanted to make sure that um, you know that if I needed to, like I guess I thought like if my if I need my to rely on my immune system, I don't want to have it suppressed in any way, shape, or form. That made my symptoms though my allergies. Sure. a little bit worse and uh, but I've been I have never checked my temperature as much as I have in the last couple I don't know about you but I have a thermometer in my car I have two, oh, two thermometers in my car uh, I have a thermometer at my desk at work I've never stopped going to work I have one of those infrared guns that I'm always like shooting myself in the forehead <laughs> with I have two at home I probably check my temperature six times a day honestly sure sure um, and to the point where now I actually know what my temperature is supposed to be in Celsius which I never knew before <laughs> So what are the, some of the things that you can see that have changed really for the positive? Things that you would like to, from a, from a practical standpoint as a medical um, professional, would like to see um, us continue doing into the, into the future? Sure. I think a lot of what we've learned is, you know, better ways of separating the, the sick from the, from the non-sick. Uh, so that, and I think these are things that, you know, even when we eventually get on the other side of uh, this uh, coronavirus issue, that we could adapt to better ways of treating things like seasonal influenza and other infectious illnesses. So things that we do with our screening processes and how we try to separate people within our facilities so that we're not, you know, commingling uh, patients who may have infections with those who, who don't, who are there for another purpose. So, you know, we've done a lot, you know, in addition to, you know, making sure that we treat patients who have suspicious symptoms in certain areas of our facility, even amongst our, you know, our, the other areas of our buildings, we've done a lot to reduce the risk of transmission. We try to keep people separated. We've removed some of our seating. We've placed placards in some of our seatings as please don't sit here, you know, in an effort to try to keep right. people, you know, spaced apart. Uh, and we've, you know, 
we, we are seeing still generally fewer patients than we had seen previously in yeah. an effort to keep people separated, but then introduce things like telemedicine, which I think is one of the things right. that has been something good to come out of all this. And I think that's uh, something that we're going to continue to do well into the future as well. Yeah, I have to believe that's true. And it, the other thing is, and our public health officials have told us forever, like things that, um, you know, you know, common sense is sometimes not so common, but, you know, washing your hands. Sure. Seriously, I guess I'm as guilty as the next person of being somebody who would say, you know, wash your hands, but would be guilty of, like, not washing my hands. <laughs> and now I'm not guilty of that because I go through, like, three quarts of hand sanitizer a day now. <laughs> um, I think I've washed my fingerprints off entirely. But um, wash your hands, you know, sneeze into your elbow, sure. um, you know, try not to go to try not to go to work. If you don't feel well, absolutely. You know, in America, it's been a point of pride. We are just the people. I think the only people that are worse than us are the Japanese. Like we go to work, we can have you know double pneumonia, but by God, we're going to go to work because we're heroes. Right. And and is that really smart? Not really. Not so much. Maybe we've learned. Do you think maybe we've learned our lesson on some of these things? I, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what happens as we as we continue to to move uh, through all this. Yeah, absolutely. It will be interesting to see. Um, I would say that if I was going to buy stock in companies these days, I would buy in Lysol and the people that make hand sanitizer because, you know, this is this is probably good stuff. It's going to be here a long time. Sure, sure. Tough to find those uh, cleaning solutions with bleach and things, too. So. Well, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah, I never thought I would be going down to the local um, gin spirits, um, which is the, you know, the distillery here in Nashua. I have bought from them 150 gallons of hand sanitizer since all this started that we've repackaged into you know for our nonprofits. I never sure. I, I've never spent so much time in a distillery as I have with COVID-19 <laughs> so maybe I'll go back and buy some of that they're actually drinkable solutions at some point too um, as far as what's going on uh, what's the state of the state here in New Hampshire as far as you know, COVID nineteen is concerned. What what does your perspective tell you? What do you think? We're, where do you think we're at? I think we've been incredibly lucky here in New Hampshire, particularly given our proximity to Massachusetts, where there's obviously been a you know very different experience. And, and just looking at the you know cities of Nashua and Manchester compared to you know Lowell and, and uh, uh, Lawrence, which are comparable in size. I mean that the, the experience has been greatly different. I, I think a lot of that may be just that perhaps we're not as quite as densely packed. Um, I am encouraged when I see, you know, people out wearing masks. Um, of course, that's not universal, unfortunately, but I, I think, you know, those those things have made a difference. So right now we're seeing the, the number of people hospitalized with COVID-19, those numbers are going down, you know, dramatically. And while we still see people continuing to test positive, that the rate of increase is not what we had been seeing a month or so ago. So it's that's very encouraging. But we, yeah. know, we know it's a different experience in some other states in the country right now. So we yeah. have to be careful. Yeah, I think we do as well. I, I've shared on the radio, my wife and I went to Hampton Beach a couple of weeks ago for the first time. And uh, well, two Saturdays ago. And uh, we did go into a couple of the shops there on the boardwalk. And I was really astonished, actually, at the number of people who weren't wearing face masks, including shopkeepers themselves, who mm. I think are legally supposed to. Um, and densely packed and not socially isolating. I felt that a little bit, frankly, uncomfortable. And um, then we drove that afternoon down to Newburyport in Massachusetts and did a little bit of shopping there. And it was a totally different experience. I have to mm. say, in Newburyport, 
Um, everybody was wearing a mask. You walked into the shop. They had masks there for people to put on. It was very clear that it was required, but there was nobody who was griping or complaining. There was hand sanitizing stations. It was very respectful. I had a very different experience in between the two states. And I think personally, I think maybe our luck, as you put it earlier, we've been very lucky. I think our luck might lead to a level of complacency that makes me a little uncomfortable too. Yeah, that's why we're very worried about that as well. And what's going to pan out through the, uh, the course of the summer months as people do pr likely become a little bit more complacent, start to gather a little bit more and, and time will tell. What does your medical crystal ball tell us as far as a vaccine? difficult to say. I mean, there are some encouraging reports that they may be making some progress, but in the back of my mind, I know that, you know, we've also been working on vaccines for things like HIV and hepatitis C for, for many years, decades. too, and we haven't, we haven't gotten there. So I'm um, hopeful and, yeah. uh, and try to be optimistic, but by no means is there a guarantee. Yeah, so some of these things like social distancing and mask wearing and hand washing probably are with us for the while. And I think so. You know, and it doesn't take an event. If you look at the experience between Europe and the United States, Europe spiked really early, but then they were very aggressive with their measures, and they've gone down to. I mean, we have states in in the United States that are that are reporting more cases than the right. entirety of Europe at this point. Right. So um, these measures work. They do. They do. So we need to remain vigilant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess what I, one of the things I wanted to ask you was. Um, the hospitals we know have taken a big hit in in our communities um, because of some of those elective surgeries and things. Even even ED visits sure. are way down. Yeah. Um, these are some of the things that are. Of course, ED visits have never been profitable for hospitals. Um, that's that's like the loss leader. That's where right. <laughs> that's where hospitals like have a sinking black hole. But um, um, the uh, elective procedures have been where hospitals have been able to make that up. Um, What's the current state look like as far as um, you know the economic situation for hospitals right now? These I think days? a lot of a lot of uh, facilities are still struggling because it's uh, yeah. it, there were quite a few months there where the you know the income was uh, um, greatly lowered from what it usually was, and of course the the need for that was to try to preserve some of the limited PPE that we had at that time and and. Uh, and also to try to keep people from uh, coming in when they may have uh, symptoms. But uh, I think, you know, gradually as we've been able to get better supply of, you know, PPE and uh, getting some of those uh, um, procedures back in. And of course, for it's not just about the income. Also, it's, you know, it's delayed care that patients were looking for. So trying to prioritize, you know, those who are most in need of coming in to have some of those procedures and some of those, uh, you know, elective visits that, you know, may have been elective several months ago, but they're becoming more urgent because of the delay. That's exactly right. So the music means we're just about done. Uh, it's been a great interview, I want to say. Um, Last, I guess, last real quick question is what can we do to support hospitals these days? What can we as a public, as a, if there's one or two things that you would like to see us do? Well, I think just being realized that, you know, the medical facilities are safer now than they ever were because of the screening process. So I know a lot of people are still somewhat resistant to come in, but we'd like people to come in to take, you know, to have the procedure, have the, you know, the care that they need uh, taken care of so that things don't escalate and so they do end up in the emergency room in a month or so because something got really bad. So be preventive. Exactly. I think that's a really great message to end on. Thank you so much, John. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. This has been an interview with Dr. John Ting from the um, 
Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. And before that, we had Casa New Hampshire joining us. Next week, we'll be back at 9 a.m. on Monday with my friend Rita from Sub-Zero Ice Cream talking about what ice cream serving in the age of coronavirus looks like, as well as our good friends from the Gate City Bicycle Co-op who are going to be on again talking about what they're doing in our community. You're listening to the United Way Community Connections show. Until next week, I would say please remember to be kind to one another because great things really do happen when we live united. Radio News with Chris Barnes. Coronavirus continues to surge in a number of U.S. states, especially in the West and in the South. That includes Florida, where another 8,500 COVID-19 cases were reported yesterday. 